Today on the Hay Kings podcast, I'm joined by Tyler Fulton. Tyler's a full-time farmer, full-time risk manager in Canada. So we're going to hear about his farming operation and some livestock risk management that he's a part of. Tyler, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about your farming operation in particular? Yeah, we farm in southwestern Manitoba, known for our very cold, cold winters and our um, mosquito-infested uh, summers. <laughs> so we run a 600-head uh, cow-calf operation. We calve the cows in May, uh, in April and May. After weaning in November, we typically will background those animals over the winter and sell them as feeders, you know, in around that um, seven to 800 pound range. Uh, as a result, we put up silage and hay about 600 acres. From time to time, we'll do straw and, uh, and bale some other crops as well. We get roughly two to three cuts off of our hayland. Typical yield would be three to four tons an acre. That sounds just about identical to the kind of production I have in northeast Washington. <laughs> yeah, I think our total rainfall or total precipitation is probably pretty similar. I think when you include snow, I'm not 100% sure, but I think we're probably in the neighborhood of around 25 to, to 30 inches of rain equivalent. <laughs> right. Your timing on that, are you able to grow spring wheat really successfully every year or is it a, do you have neighbors that are doing that every other year? It's consistent. Um, there's not a lot of winter wheat in the area anymore. Spring wheat is, uh, in my area, I'm surrounded largely by grain farmers. There's not as many livestock guys anymore, but there's still a smattering of, of us cow-calf guys. The grain farmers in the area are typically dealing with a crop rotation of canola, wheat, maybe another cereal. Peas are another. Soybeans have crept into the area now. So those are some of the crops that are, are, are common around the area here. Geography around where I live is kind of known as the prairie pothole region. And so what that means is in a quarter section around here, call it a full section, a mile by a mile, the number of acres that one could farm or crop would probably be, of a total 640, it would probably be in the neighborhood of around 450 to, to 600 acres. There's a whole bunch of these small sloughs that make crop farming, uh, I think, a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> You're always farming around something. Yes, exactly. Uh, when you say cold, when do you put on a jacket? <laughs> in you know, in January, it's not uncommon, uh, and I'll I'll try to put it in Fahrenheit terms if if that makes sense. It's not uncommon to be dealing with two weeks, you know, three weeks of minus twenty degrees. We can go long periods of time where it's frigid, but the cattle seem to adapt. They uh, they seem to do okay. We give them shelter and some good nutrition and uh and they seem to weather the storm when you get down to minus 20 and minus 30 and minus 40 i don't think it matters much anymore whether you're talking celsius or fahrenheit <laughs> yeah no that's right exactly <laughs> that's just plain cold you have this millennial farmer thing going on right where you have a farming operation and i, I assume you still have that off-farm income absolutely yeah it seems like it's almost more the norm than the exception now. Maybe less so a more professional position, but yeah, I uh, I work for uh, off farm part time for a company called Hams Marketing 
Co-op, which is a, a pork marketing co-op that markets about 1.6 million hogs over a year for independent hog producers across Western Canada. What stage in the production are those hogs that you're marketing? Are those market ready? Yeah, those are okay. Market ready hogs. Yeah, slaughter hogs. Yeah. Like, other than that, I never really had any connection to the hog market. Uh, That's where the jobs were when I graduated from university. And so I I started into that industry and stuck with it. Uh, And I I never actually anticipated that I'd still be doing it. But here I am, 20 years, (laughs) pretty much 20 years on, and uh, I'm, I'm still plugging away at it. So I've been farming for about 13 years, and I worked in the city for about five years before that. Okay, so tell me how you split your time between those two. Yeah, it's uh, I'm really fortunate in that I have an employer that gives me a lot of uh, flexibility. I guess a little bit about what I do for Ham's Marketing. I, I, I'm typically active in analyzing uh, hog markets and uh, trying to determine kind of relative value and so we can put together tools that help hog producers manage their price risk. So what that means in you know for us in Canada is we use the the futures to hedge that the hog portion of the price risk. We also need to take you know take some currency risk, our currency protection. On a daily basis, I'm interested and a little bit more active and busy with that job um, while the market is open. For the most part, it's not hugely time-consuming. I can do some of the basic work, basic analysis, really at any time. And then the trading requires that I, you know, that I be available and active in the morning during futures trading hours. Now, you mentioned currency risk. We met at a livestock conference in Chicago, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're a Canadian hog trader that was at a conference in the U.S. and you're talking about exchange rates. Could you explain the relationship between the U.S. hog market and the Canadian hog market? It's fairly straightforward. Because the two markets or the two countries are so integrated in livestock in general, Canadian packers do is they use U.S. price points, U.S. references, reference prices to determine what cash price, what they're going to pay for those slaughter hogs. Because it's a function of a formula that references U.S. prices, we can use the lean hog futures in in Chicago to hedge that risk in the same way that producers in the U.S. do. The other component, the other major component to that price is currency. We also have to account for the changes in the relationship of the Canadian dollar to the U.S. dollar. In U.S. dollars, the Canadian dollar is worth... um, 70 cents. Yeah. Yep. When it changes, we need to, you know, it affects the price that the packers are paying, and so therefore affects the price that producers need to hedge. And so therefore we, we take on Canadian dollar futures positions in order to hedge, that, hedge that, that risk. That's a very different thought process where uh, I don't think most folks understand how tightly knit those livestock markets are. Now you're talking about fats, but also the those wiener pigs. You're probably talking about isoweens or, or like little pigs? Yeah, little pigs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a, uh, a pretty significant trade in Canadian, what they call isoweens or, you know, 10 to 15 pound piglets that move from Canada into the Midwest. And as a matter of fact, you know, with the collapse really of, of hog prices over the last couple of weeks uh, or months, 
some of that uh, trade dry up. You know, some of the stories that you may have heard of that animals were being euthanized in the United States because the closures of packing plants. Mm-hmm. Um, same, same, similar uh, things are happening here in Canada because the American customers simply didn't have space to to put them. Take me through that process. What happens to those isoweens? The hog industry is very much a just-in-time kind of scenario through the whole supply chain. So if animals are delayed in going from the feeder barn to a packing plant, then they're taking up space that would otherwise be immediately filled by slightly smaller pigs, so on and so forth, all the way back, the lightest pig that they would put into a feeder barn, there's simply, you know, there's simply no space for those baby pigs to move into. Consequently, I mean, as terrible as it is, those those pigs would need to be euthanized because there's no holding on to them. There's no other, there's no place for them. When there's a stoppage at the packing plant, that's fed all the way back up the supply chain. And for that matter, actually, there's repercussions down the supply chain from the packing plant as well. We're talking the end of May here. Has there been any improvement in that uh, situation? Just last week, we've gotten some sense that there is some improvement. We, at the peak so far, what we've seen is uh, a reduction in slaughter capacity of close to 30%. And this is in the United States. Now, I think last week it was significantly less than that. It was definitely under 20%. So there's definitely a feeling, I think, that you know some of these plants, like the big one in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, is now back up and running and, and uh, while they were down um, for for more than two weeks, I think. What a roller coaster ride. The thing I've been telling people recently is that, especially with perishable products, I live in the dairy world quite a bit, but also extending to some of these uh, livestock products where we have, as you mentioned, just in time, I've been describing this as a knife edge. Our producers and profitability are on a knife edge all the time. And we just yeah. fell off that knife. <laughs> that's that's a, that's a good analogy. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're we're always balancing between just enough and too much, and and we got way out of whack really fast. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of background as to how I ended up, you know, taking on this. It's this risk theme of risk management, and in particular, risk management in livestock has been really a theme of my whole career, pretty much. Um, even though I'm I'm you know, predominantly a a farmer, a cattle farmer, it's been the focus really of most of my professional life. I think what the driving kind of factor of it was when I was a kid growing up in the, in the eighties and nineties, my mother worked for a federal agency that was tasked with negotiating work through some of the farm foreclosures that were rampant um, after the the huge spike in interest rates in the early 80s. I remember her coming home and talking about her experiences and doing what she could, I think, to, you know, to help the farmers to to not lose everything. That, I think, is what motivated me to kind of get my ag degree and in particular in ag business and with a focus on risk management. And the first job that that I could find that gave me that kind of experience is what I took. And so I've kind of been doing that type of thing really ever since. You know, we have a, a common theme here. 
uh, right after I got out of college. Uh, I worked for the Washington State University Western Center for Risk Management Education. So the the same huh. concepts here. We were mostly funneling grant money from the risk management agency that administers the federal crop insurance to producer associations to teach producers how to do uh, all these various risk management techniques. Uh, but yeah. also got out and got to talk to producers uh, as an extension associate. And that that was fun and exciting and, and really makes you feel like you're helping people when you are managing that risk. That's right. Yeah. Especially when you go through, you know, extreme times. Like when, when I started my, my job in the hog business was pretty much at the lowest level. Now, I mean, now we've made probably new lows in terms of prices and and volatility. But the previous kind of benchmark would have been uh, 1998, 1999, when uh, the supply of hogs exceeded the the capacity to, to, to slaughter them and prices just collapsed. And so now uh, it motivates one to, to really get you know, figure it out, you know, and, and work hard to, to help communicate how to, you know, how to properly manage that risk. One of the things that I'm observing in the contemporary ag market, even at the farm level, to be a contemporary ag producer, you have to be managing price risk somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And it isn't necessarily because of a global pandemic, although it helps <laughs> having some price risk management <laughs> yeah, in place. Yeah. Uh, it does help, but it, at the same time, there's always something going on in the market that could disrupt your profitability. Yeah, that's exactly right. In particular, in, in livestock markets, you know, the margins have been so tight, really, over the course of the last 15 or 20 years, in Canada anyways. Uh, you know, we had the experience BSE in the early 2000s that really pinched the industry. You just can't afford to ignore it. Uh, when margins are that tight, that those volatile years really can make or break you. If I argued that producers are more afraid of missing out on upside opportunity than they are losing money, I would say it depends on the individual, um, obviously, but I would say that would be a fair, I, I would agree with that statement. I think that that is, there's something I think about being a farmer that creates this kind of chronic optimism. And when you have that chronic optimism, you're kind of, you know, inevitably you're a risk taker because you're you're producing stuff and you're exposed to the adverse weather events and the markets and everything and so it's just the world we live in and so i think to some degree to define exactly why that is the case i'm i'm not 100% sure but i would totally agree with that even in my own operation let's take that risk maybe there's something exhilarating about it you know there is definitely something to that and I can say myself, you know, you look for the win-wins. You look for the, I mean, there's so few of them, it seems, but I'm probably a little bit different just because, you know, in my off-farm job, I've spent, you know, years trying to change the mentality and, and the approach that producers might have to managing risk. And I feel like I've kind of got a new, a discipline that probably is not common in amongst farmers. What would you say it takes to get a producer to think a little bit different, to go from that, let's take risks, to I'm okay making a little bit of money consistently? I think necessity is the mother, 
of invention. And I mean, if what it is, is they, they need to learn. What I can say is that we've come a long ways in the Canadian hog industry. We've come a long ways in the last 15 years. It was a lot more of a Wild West kind of cowboy culture. You're rolling the dice and, and aiming for the big payoff 15 years ago. What I found is that attrition has left those that I think have been more effective managers of risk. You know, for example, in the hog marketing cooperative that I worked for, back then, a significant percentage of the hogs that we marketed would have been something in the neighborhood of around 10 to 12% of all of the hogs that we marketed. Whereas today or last year, last year, the, that percentage was up over 40%. It's come a long ways. One of the things I'm observing in the marketplace right now is in dairy and cattle, we have crop insurance policies for livestock that didn't exist 10 years ago, certainly. There's a new skill set required to manage those tools and, and that risk, and it doesn't look like what grandpa did, right? No, it is a different world, and I think that's probably the biggest challenge because the other aspect of it, like to kind of build those skills all the while, you need to still be running your operation. And I would argue that most farmers are pretty darn busy as it is. When it's suggested that you you take time out of your busy day to go and learn a new skill, it's not generally the, you know, the top of the list. You follow along in the U.S. markets really, really closely, obviously. There's this discussion in cattle markets right now about consolidation and about market power at the different levels in, in the marketing chain, in the value chain. And quite frequently what they cite is the market trends that have occurred in poultry and pork working their way back to the cattle industry. Where do you stand on that, where you have producers that are largely marketing, you just said, 40% of their animals? Maybe 40% of the producers are marketing 100% of their animals. I don't know quite where that sets, but these are some different dynamics and there's some resistance to change. Yeah, I, I mean, I think like now the poultry industry is dominated by just a handful of big players, and they are completely vertically integrated. And you could say the same, uh, less, slightly less so about the hog industry, but one of the features that is often overlooked is just the culture of the cattle industry and the, the culture of the cow-calf business. That, I think, is something that's overlooked in that probably be a barrier to that consolidation. Like, I, I think the gist of, the, of it is is that because they're so invested in that culture, we, uh, myself, being a cattle producer as well, because we're so invested in that culture, it's almost like we're willing to produce for less. The, the expectation of, ret- of a return on investment is less, and it's because we're just so invested in the culture of living off the land, you know, in a by grazing animals and by growing forage. I really think there's something to that, and, and I think that there's something to the the fact that it causes like a more of a culture of self reliance. It may slow down, you know, the trend to a, a full consolidation uh, throughout the whole value chain of the beef industry. I would agree with you. Now, what I want to do here is is marry these two ideas together. If a cattle producer wants to stay independent and they want to hold on to that lifestyle and, and maybe that family tradition, that's that's something certainly important in agriculture. How does that risk management practice layer into that? I think it's been a challenge, um, honestly, and I because I, I think that 
there's not been a lot of tools out there for cattle producers to manage risk. I, I know definitely in Canada anyways, there's been not a lot of mechanisms to do that. And, you know, generations raised cattle, took the market price whenever they shipped the cattle with blind faith. And there wasn't another option, uh, really. I think we, you know, we're starting to develop, I think, some tools. And I know I'm involved with the Canadian Cattlemen Association, CCA, and our provincial association, the Manitoba Beef Producers. That is like a very immediate focus that we have is engaging beef producers in risk management. It couldn't be more timely in this, in this age of COVID-19 and the volatility that we've seen as a result of it, we really need to encourage, I think, beef beef producers to lay off some of that risk, to be able to price and secure a profit or a, at least a margin or even a break-even in when you are dealing with such great uncertainty. Would you say that these contemporary risk management tools, now in the U.S. we have uh, we have a couple more tools, obviously traditional futures and, and hedging, but also livestock gross margins is the federal crop insurance policy that first comes to mind. Whole farm revenue mm-hmm. is another one. Would you say that those kind of risk management practices will allow cattle producers to stay more independent from vertical integration? Yeah. What it does is it allows people to take charge. Tyler, I've had a ball in this conversation. It's amazing how just across the border, it's a little different, but at the same time, it's all the same. I do appreciate your time and your unique take on things. All right. Thanks a lot.